This morning I changed it again. <laughs> Suppose I gave you an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and let's suppose you can type or use a computer and I said write a one page understanding that you have of the nature of God that'd be about 200, 250 words what is God like? and maybe you might have some biblical uh, some scriptures from the Bible to back that up uh, we would say that he is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he is eternal. All three persons of the Godhead are eternal. We would use words like all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present. He is holy, he is just, he is loving, he is merciful, he is gracious and compassionate. Those were some of the, those were some of the thoughts I'm sure you would have if you were to write a description of the nature of God. There are many who do not like that description. They look at scripture, they see God acting, they read statements about God, and they frankly hate what they read. They want God to loosen up a bit, to give them some slack, to not be so rigid and demanding. And so we have people today who radically adjust and alter the nature of God. Uh, his self-revelation in the Bible is uh, too harsh for their sensibilities. So they domesticate a God that appeals to their wants and desires and wishes. The minor prophets never did that. The minor prophets uh, gave the message to the people that God had commanded them to give. They reveal the one true God in action in history. Now, he is a gracious savior, but he's a mighty judge. He is the one who saves, but he also condemns. And today, as we take a quick tour through the book of Joel, we will see those two aspects of the nature of God. They're not the contradictory, it's who God is. Joel's prophetic ministry focused on the nation of Judah, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that were located closest to Jerusalem. And the message grew out of a calamity that was occurring at that point in history. The invasion of a plague of locusts, coupled by severe drought. And the combination made the land unproductive and brought tremendous suffering to man and animal. Now why was this happening? Was this a cycle of nature without any rhyme or reason? Things that just happen in nature now and again? Joel doesn't see it that way. He sees it as the judgment of God. And God enabled Joel, enabled Joel by the Spirit to look far into the future, beyond the current situation, and he saw something far worse than a plague of locusts. He saw armies surrounding 
the city of Jerusalem about to do battle with the people. So Joel uses the immediate judgment of God, the locust, as an illustration of the ultimate judgment of God in the end times. The term he uses to describe the current and future catastrophes is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. That's the theme of Joel, the day of the Lord. And that phrase occurs five times in this little book. In fact, there are 17 explicit mentions of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. Isaiah mentions it, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Amos, Ezekiel. And there are only four mentions of the day of the Lord in the New Testament. The phrase, the day of the Lord, both in its context in history and especially in its future context, refers to a time when God will pour out his wrath in history against his own people, either Israel or Judah. In the future, refers to God's wrath against the Gentile nations because of their defiance of his holy laws, their rejection of the gospel, and especially their mistreatment of Israel. Just a little bit of history here. The Abrahamic covenant given to Abraham in Genesis 12, and the Davidic covenant given to David in 2 Samuel 7, were covenants, were agreements, were pledges that God made to Abraham and David to bless the offspring of Abraham, which became the Jews, and to rise up and to raise up from within uh, David's household a king who would reign forever and ever. We know that king is Jesus. The fulfillment of the covenants, Abrahamic and, and Davidic, does not depend on the faithfulness of the people. It depends on the faithfulness of God. And that requires a future for the nation of Israel. Israel lost her national status way back when the Assyrians invaded 722 BC. She only regained her nationhood in May of 1948. Millions of Jews have migrated back to Israel. In 1948 there were 650,000 Jews there. Now there are over 5.5 million. 76 percent of the population of Israel is Jewish. 16 percent is Muslim a little over 2% is a Christian. Now, if you watch the news, and I am a news junkie, Israel is in the news virtually every day. It's a volatile part of the world. Uh, American presidents for years have tried to get the, Palest the Palestinians and the Jews together, and they've had agreement after agreement after agreement, and Sometimes these agreements work, like with Jordan and Egypt, things are working out pretty good at the present time. But there are other Arab nations that would love to have Israel annihilated from the map. I want to say that those who hate the Jews are cursed by God. The Abrahamic covenant says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. Genesis 12 and verse 3. God has plans for his chosen people. The vast majority of Jews right now, even those back in their land, 
are back as unbelievers. They go back for family reasons, for political reasons, for economic reasons, not for spiritual reasons. But if we believe what we read in Romans chapter 11 and verses 25 to 27, there is coming a day when there will be a, a major turning of the Jewish people to God. They will accept their Messiah. Romans 11:26. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Just as there is now going on a physical restoration of the Jews to Palestine, there will be a spiritual rebirth of the nation. When will this happen? I believe it happens after the rapture of the church during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 7 mentions 144,000 Jews who will be saved in, a, in an instant. And I believe that many, many more, perhaps millions, will come to faith in Christ. Well, Joel uh, is a difficult book to date because there's no mention of kings. And sometimes we can date a book by the kings referred to. There are no mention of other nations like the Babylonians or the, or the Assyrians. So he wrote it somewhere between 900 B.C. and 400 B.C., probably the conservative commentators would say around 830 B.C. Joel means the Lord is God. And in the first half of the book, we have the day of the Lord uh, uh, typified or pictured. And then in the last half, the day of the Lord uh, prophesied. John Piper says the first half of the book describes how God fought against his own people to make them honor him alone. The second half of the book describes how he will fight against the nations who refuse to honor him alone. So God, in the historical concept, uh, context, fought against Judah, his own people, because they failed to honor him, but in the end times, he'll fight against all nations, all people, who do not honor him. So we have bad news, and we have good news. The bad news is that God is holy and judges sinners. The good news is that even at the 11th hour, if you repent, if anyone repents, they'll be saved and God will bless. So the day of the Lord is pictured from 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 27. We have the proclamation that Joel brings and it includes, uh, well, we'll look at the first uh, 20 verses, not in detail, of course. We can hardly imagine the desolation, the desperation accompanied, that accompanied the locust plague. And Joel does not treat this a calamity lightly. It is an unprecedented, unmitigated disaster. And he addresses several groups of people in the first 20 verses. He talks to the old men or the elders, and he asks them. It's a rhetorical question. Has anything like this ever happened before? And the answer is, no, it hasn't. He speaks to the drunkards. Now, why would he speak to the drunkards? Well, because they need grapes to make wine. There's no grapes, there's no wine. They're upset. He speaks to the worshipers in verses 8 to 10. They have nothing to offer. They have nothing to bring to the temple. There's nothing growing. He speaks to the farmers in verses 11 and 12. Crops are ruined. There is no harvest. 
locusts can make short order of crops. Then he speaks to the priests in verses 13 and 14. He says to them, gird yourself with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Withheld because there's nothing to offer. There's no uh, produce to bring. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter here. The people have sinned against God. That's why this natural disaster, which is really supernatural because God is behind it, has happened. There is no rescue. There will be no rescue, no removal, no restoration until there is repentance. Now, Joel does not try to absolve God of responsibility. Joel is not saying, well, God has nothing to do with this. God has everything to do with that. Notice what he says in verse 15. Alas, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from whom? The Almighty. Destruction from the Almighty in its historical situation and, of course, in its future reference. Some people say, well, God doesn't send disasters, uh, tsunamis or earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes or floods or drought. Those are just freaks of nature. They just happen. There's no divine reason behind them. There is a divine reason behind them. Sometimes we don't know what that reason is. But if God is sovereign, that means he controls nature. And that means that if Terrible things happen in nature. It's because of the, they are ordained by God to happen. If God is not in control of nature, maybe he's not in control of anything. And then we're all in trouble. God is not surprised or alarmed when the calamities strike. James Boyce says it often takes a disaster of unparalleled proportions to wake us from sin's lethargy. So this not only pertains to nations, but to individuals. There are countless people who have come to a point of desperation and humility because of a crisis. Could be a health crisis, could be a family crisis, could be a business crisis. They've come to the end of their pride and rebellion because something very painful has happened in their lives. And that is often the work of God to bring them to himself. C.S. Lewis calls it a, a severe mercy. A severe mercy. A severe because it is difficult. It's affliction. It's adversity. It is painful. And God ordains consequences of actions. When people foolishly pursue a course in life that is contrary to his revealed will and holy purposes, God can bring about consequences in a way that the person never imagined or foresaw would happen. Shame and misery and pain. And that's an evidence of the love of God. He wants to get our attention. In the good times, people often pay no attention to God. In the bad times, they often do. Do not regard adversity in your life as something bad. 
Then he talks about the tribulation of the people, chapter 2, verse the first 11 verses. What, what is Joel going to say to them? What counsel will he give? Well, maybe he, he's a psychologist, he's a motivational speaker, he can give them a pep talk, something which will inspire them to gut it out. Just hang in there. Things are bad now, but they're bound to get better. There's a silver lining behind every cloud. Maintain a stiff upper lip. Gut it out. Be optimistic. This too will pass. Tomorrow will be a brighter day. That kind of counsel is very popular today because it leaves God out of the picture. And it leaves human responsibility out of the picture. People are not called upon to examine their own hearts in relationship to God. They're just called upon to dig within themselves, dig deeper into your psyche and find the real you, the divine you, and you can conquer, you can overcome. Joel will not whitewash the horrific nature of the calamity. He says, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy hill, that all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. This is nothing to be casual about. Don't be indifferent to what has happened. Don't say just one of those things that occur in nature. No, this is, this is God getting your attention is what he's saying here. And he speaks about a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness as the dawn is spread over the mountain. So there is great and mighty people. There have, has never been anything like it. And he likens the locust to a great fire that spreads over, over the countryside. The land is like a garden of Eden before the locust. It's like it's been burned with fire behind the locust. They're compared to uh, horses. They have a, a look in a, in a slight sort of way to a, to a horse. The noise of many chariots, they leap on top of mountains like the crackling of flame of fire. Uh, you farmers know more about grasshoppers and stuff like that than I do, but I remember being in Mydale, Saskatchewan, years ago, visiting someone, and it was summertime, and Mydale can get very, very hot, and they had had an infestation of, of grasshoppers. So wherever you walked, if you walked across a, line, a, lo a lawn, which was dry, really dry, you'd take a step, and these things would fly up, and they would crackle. You, you could hear them. Imagine millions and millions and millions of them Imagine the noise. In fact, so much, Joel goes on to say, that they blot out the sun. And locusts can, can do that. There can be such numbers that they can virtually blacken the skies. No obstacle can, uh, can stop them. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers. They march in line, nor do they deviate. Uh, they march everyone in his own path. They rush into the city. They run on the wall. They... They just keep moving, surging, surging, surging. And they go up and over and in and around. You just can't stop them. That's how he pictures this onslaught. But notice how they're described in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. This is God's army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. I still think he's probably referring to the natural calamity of the locusts. But this will refer, of course, to the day of the Lord um, 
also. They're carrying out, these bugs, these insects, are carrying out the will of God in judging Judah. Now listen carefully to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. There is a spiritual issue here. With fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Don't put on a show of religious piety. Don't just say, oh, we better start going to church or we better get religious. No. Don't do anything external. There's something that needs to transpire within your heart. We'll see, say more about this later. When sinners repent, God relents. So we get down to verse uh, 13. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And you hear people say, well, the God, the God of the Old Testament is not like Jesus of the New Testament. There is no difference in their personhood, of course. They are God. But the Father is gracious. He responds with mercy when we don't deserve it. He is compassionate. That speaks of his great love for his people. He is slow to anger. He holds back judgment as long as possible. God does not have a hair trigger temper that just bursts into anger and rage at the slightest provocation. In fact, the exact opposite. He is long-suffering. We deserve immediate judgment. And God withholds that judgment. You know, the proof of God's graciousness, his compassionate nature, his being slow to anger, the proof of that is your life and mine. You know, we often do not see ourselves as we are. We usually compare ourselves with people, which is a bad thing to do, and we probably come out looking pretty good. Compare yourself with Jesus. Compare your thoughts, compare your attitudes, compare your words with what is holy and righteous and pure. That's what God sees. God sees the heart. So Joel says, who knows? Maybe he will relent and leave a blessing behind, even a grain offering and a drink offering. So blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. Again, gather all the people. Everyone is to gather together and humble themselves before God. And let's see what will happen. And what will happen, verses 18 to 27, is restoration. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine, oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. God will be gracious. He will be merciful. He will bring back celebration and rejoicing. We read that in verses 21 through 24. Now, verse 24, Three is often misinterpreted, I believe. So rejoice, O sons of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the, the rain, the early and latter rain as before. 
Early rains came in October and December to prepare the seed bed and assist in the germination of the seed. The latter rains came in March and April, or March to May, to provide moisture for the crops to mature. Some have tried to spiritualize this into an early movement of the Holy Spirit in the day of Pentecost and a latter movement of the Holy Spirit in the end times. Well, that's going to happen. In fact, later on we will see a verse which will speak to that issue. But the early and latter rain, I believe, it means physical rain. It means what it says, not a spiritual um, counterpart. They will have a bumper crops, according to verses 25 through 27. So that's the day of the Lord in history. And quite often, when the prophets spoke, they saw something happening right away in the context of where they lived and, and the nations and the people. And then they looked in the far, far future by the Holy Spirit and saw something happen way, way down there. And uh, they would have no idea that they were doing this, but as we read Scripture, we can see that between this historical day of the Lord and the latter day of the Lord, there are centuries and centuries. And that's what we find in, in many texts. Let me, let, me just, let, let me just read you one, because... The uh, day of the Lord in its, in its uh, uh, historical context is found uh, several times in the prophets. Amos chapter 5 and verse uh, 18. Alas, you, are lo- you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? Here are people saying, we want the day of the Lord. And the prophet says, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against a wall and a snake bites him, will not the day of the Lord be a day of darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness? Then God says, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I will not accept them. You bring peace offerings. I'll refuse them. That's similar to what Joel said, rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just come to the place of worship and, do, and go through the ritual. I know your heart. Your heart hasn't changed. He says that to you and I, folks. Don't just attend church. My truth is to penetrate and result in real repentance. So the day of the Lord speaks of a time of divine wrath, and the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord is still in the future. So let's, let's look at that very, very quickly. We get down to Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. It will come about after this, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. That is quoted by the apostle uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 21. Right out of the book of Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, God says, I will pour up my spirit on all mankind. Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. 
The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now, that didn't happen at Pentecost. There were signs, there were wonders, there were miracles, absolutely, on the day of Pentecost. But the complete fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, in the sense that we find it in Joel and in Acts 2, didn't all take place on Pentecost. There were no uh, disturbances in the heavens. There will be, as predicted by Jesus in Matthew 24, and in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 and following. So we look forward to a final outpouring of the Holy Spirit in terms of the wrath of God in the future, in the day of the Lord. Let me give you a word of caution here. Modern-day prophets, so-called, are claiming visions and dreams and direct revelations and some of them speak in the first person. In other words, they say, they speak as if God is speaking. I've actually heard this on tape. I've seen it on some of the TV programs. I've read it, that they claim to be giving messages directly from God. They're not interpreting scripture. They say, the Lord says, and they say. I say, be really, really cautious about that kind of stuff. It undermines the Bible, and it means that these people don't believe we have enough revelation in Scripture. What if Dan and I got up here Sunday morning and said, Folks, today, you don't need your Bible today. God spoke to me in a dream last night, and here's what he told me. God gave me a revelation by his Spirit. It's not in the Bible, but you don't need the Bible today. Here's something extra that God said. I would hope the elders would shut me down. The only thing that Dan and I have to say and our teachers have to say is from the Bible. That's the revelation. So just be cautious of those who are claiming to receive uh, new truth from God. God speaks to us. Yes, he does in Scripture. Well, we get now to chapter 3. The judgment poured out during the day of the Lord. Notice how chapter 3 begins. For behold, in those days at that time, he's talking about the future, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. And I think this is not simply the temporary, restor the, uh, the, a tempor the temporary restoration of Judah and Israel back to their homeland after the Babylonian captivity. I think it refers to the restoration of Israel and of Jerusalem in the end day, in the end times. Chapter 2, or verse 2 says, I will gather all nations and bring them to the valley of, of Jehoshaphat, or Jehoshaphat, which means Jehovah judges. Now the nations are going to gather against Israel. That's uh, pointed out in the book of Revelation. They'll come to Mount uh, Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon takes place in that location, which is an actual site, a valley in the north part of Israel. They will assemble there because they believe they can wipe Israel off the map. That's their intention. They don't know that God has called them there for their destruction. And that happens in Revelation 19. It happens here. God is calling the nations together not so they can destroy Israel, but so he can destroy them. 
for their hatred of Israel. Notice verse 2, I will enter into judgment with them on my behalf in those days. Multitudes, multitudes, the text says, in the valley of decision. Some had really misconstrued this as being an invitation for salvation. It's not that at all. The one deciding here isn't man, it is God. God is announcing a verdict. God is pronouncing a sentence of judgment. That's the context. There's no escape, there's no appeal, there's no hope. Final thoughts, just some brief, brief uh, practical thoughts here. Never lose sight of God's purpose in history. At the end of the first section of Joel, verse 27, here's what we find. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. I am the Lord their God, there is no other. Notice how the last half of Joel ends. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. I dwell in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. God's purpose in history is the glory of his name. God's purpose in your life and mine is the exaltation of his name. Our purpose of existence is to make God look good. But too many of us have bought into our culture. We are concerned more about our feelings than God's honor. Our reputation, our image, our desires, our goals, our comforts, our pleasure. Most of our personal problems would be swallowed up if we turned the focus of our lives away from ourselves to God and his glory. If our hearts wander from God, secondly, he will fight against us to bring us to repentance. In history, God did this with Israel and with Judah. He punished his people. And if God is our father and we are not obedient to our father, he will take us to the woodshed in a variety of ways to get our attention, to turn around. He will bring trouble into our lives if we're Guilty of greed, he will bring crushing debt and financial distress. If we're guilty of pride, he will bring shame and failure. If we're guilty of unforgiveness, he will bring conflict and the destruction of relationships. If we're guilty of selfish pursuits, he will ensure we have lack of success in those pursuits. Demonstrate genuine repentance. Rend your heart and not your garment. Return to the Lord. Not just a little bit of our hearts on Sunday morning or a little bit of our hearts at mealtime we pray or a little bit of our hearts we have devotions. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And until he has all of our hearts, he will mercifully fight against us. Piper says, every divine stroke is the discipline of a loving father a blow against our pride, our self-reliance, and our love for the world. If you are not following God and your life is filled with chaos and misery and struggle and pain, thank God for it. It's his warning to you to stop pursuing the world. Then pray earnestly and seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit. 
And really that fullness is Christ-likeness. It is the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. It is that growth, that process of going in 2 Corinthians 3.18 from glory to glory to glory so that we can reflect the image of Jesus Christ. I want to end with a, with a quote, a quote which in my notes is in, in my introduction, but I have lines and squiggles and arrows all over the place here, so <laughs> I put it at the end of the message. We talk about the image of God, and we have, have discussions about that, what, what that means to us. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, the verse I just mentioned, that we pass from glory to glory by the Holy Spirit so that we are conformed to the image of God. Our purpose in life is that God is glorified. We do this when we reflect the image of God to other people and in our circumstances. I borrowed a book from Pastor Dan called When People Are Big and God Is Small. Overcoming peer pressure, a codependency, and the fear of man. I've decided that most of my lack of Christ-like reactions to people is because of personal sensitivity. Too much concern about Wayne Wicks's feelings. Not enough about God's glory. That may be true of you. The essence of imaging God is to rejoice in God's presence, to love him above all else, to live for his glory, not our own. The most basic question of human existence becomes, how can I bring glory to God? Not, how will God meet my psychological longings? These differences create very little, a very different tugs on our heart. One constantly pulls us outward toward God. The other first pulls us inward toward ourselves. Instead of the image of God being a place inside you, a hollow core that is passive and easily damaged, the image as bringing glory to God is found in the way we live. It suggests that our hearts are always active, either in bringing glory to God or to self. Ultimately, the awesome responsibility and glorious privilege of image-bearing is expressed in simple acts of obedience that have eternal implications. Imaging God is loving him and loving your neighbor. In the same way that God is holy, God's holy love and justice are manifest in concrete acts, so should ours be. Wherever you find faith and trust, you find people imaging God. This is exactly opposite to our culture, which is concerned about self. The purpose of God in history is the exaltation of his name. His image, not mine. His glory, not mine, not yours. And let's see the troubles, the hardships, the afflictions, the little things people say that really upset us as part of us, God's program to help us grow up and begin to image God in his glory and be less concerned about ourselves. I've concluded if I did this every day, I'd be a much happier person. (laughs) 
and so would you be. And you become what God wants you to be, someone who reflects his image. Let's pray. Thank you, dear God, for your truth. Sometimes it's hard truth. We don't like trouble. We don't like problems. We don't like afflictions. But you are God, and you love us. And our comfort is not the main thing. Your glory is. Having our plans realized is not what life is about. Doing your will is what life is about. So even the struggles and difficulties and trials that all of us are going through in one way or another now, maybe you're trying to get our attention. Maybe there's a goal, a pursuit, a belief, a philosophy which dishonors you. Show us what that is and bring us to repentance in Christ's name. Amen.